different. So the last two weeks, we had a main passage we were walking through and a main idea. This is going to be a little more like you're in class with me. I won't give you a test or a quiz. I promise uh, some of you will have tests. What's that? I think I already have given her a test. <laughs> I haven't graded it yet, though, <laughs> which is what, normal, right? So today, um, just to manage like what you're expecting, we're going to walk through some information on the topic of atheism, specifically something called new atheism. Uh, new atheism, if you don't know what that is, it's okay. I want to give you an opener to it to like understand it, an introduction. And then I want to try to give you as many um, quotes by atheists in their own words. Anytime someone comes up and says, this is what someone else thinks, there's a possibility that that person doesn't understand them and it might be better to go right to that person you're talking about. So today I have a lot of quotations from actual new atheists that I think should help us as we think through this. And then lastly, I want to end with a few verses in Scripture that I think will, number one, explain this to us, and number two, give us some idea of how we should proceed if we're interacting with new atheists ourselves. So a little more like a lecture today. At first, we will get to the Scripture, though. So let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll start off in Romans chapter 1 for just a brief section. So, Father, we love you. Thank you, God, for today. Thank you for being kind to us, Lord. Thank you for being gracious, forgiving, merciful, gentle. Thank you for being a loving God. I pray for us now, Lord, as we walk through this section, uh, this material, I pray that it would help equip us, God. Equip us as we go out and take the word of the world. In your son's name we pray, amen. Okay, Romans chapter 1. Uh, one of my favorite passages it was very helpful for me when I first discovered this passage. Romans chapter 1. We won't read the whole thing. We're just going to dip in here and there to get some big ideas. In chapter 1, this is the beginning of Paul's, I don't know, some people have called it Paul's magnum opus, his, his full-out declaration of the gospel. He starts off by greeting the church at Rome, and then he's going to walk through uh, what he wants to declare. And what he wants to declare is the gospel. So in chapter 1, verse 16, it says this, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and then also the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So he explains the gospel, the good news about God. And the good news of the gospel is that by, by simply trusting in God by faith, he will make us righteous. But before he walks further down that path, he's now going to talk about sin and what that looks like. And he's going to talk about the wrath that's coming on all of us because we've sinned. Verse 18 says, for the wrath of God, and wrath is like intense anger. Think about it like that. Intense anger with some punishment behind it. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. I'm going to talk more about this passage later, but when I think of atheism, the main place in Scripture, I think, are these people who are suppressing. These people who know that a God exists, but they're pushing that knowledge down or hiding it off to the side, and the thing that they're using to shove it aside is unrighteousness, which is like sin. So in their sin, in their unbelief, they're covering up what they know to be true. All right, that's a pretty big statement to make. I'm essentially saying, I think I understand atheists better than they do. So I want to walk through this whole issue. We're going to end up back in this passage a little later. But for now, let's dive into the notes here. So I'm calling this uh, New Atheism, Trading Content for Contempt. And that will become clear as we walk through this. So what's New Atheism? All right, first of all, let's just say this. Atheism isn't new. There's nothing new about atheism. If you look in the Psalms... Uh, if you look in the scriptures, you're going to see there are people who reject God and don't believe in him. And so if you think of the Psalms, and we'll get to these later, the fool hath said in his heart there is no God. 
So David pens that, and that would have been in 900 B.C. around that time. So atheism's been around. This is not a new thing. But there is something today in our culture called new atheism. All right. So then what's new about new atheism? Well, the new atheists, it's not that they have new arguments. When you think about atheists of yesteryear in the you know, previous 150 years, they primarily focused on building logical arguments that disprove the existence of God. And they have failed, but they kept trying to come up with new arguments. The new atheists today don't offer new arguments. There's, you're not going to listen to their argument and say, oh, here's something new. So Bertrand Russell, an atheist from about 100 years ago, he talked about the teapot. If any of you have heard of Russell's teapot, he says, suppose there's a teapot that orbits on the other side of the moon, and it always is there, and no matter what we do, we can't see that teapot, but someone thinks it's there. What if I say, how do you know there's a teapot? And the person who believes in the teapot says, I'll tell you what, prove to me the teapot exists. There's no evidence. I don't need to. And so his argument is there's no evidence for a God, so he doesn't need to prove that God exists. Well, there's a current-day atheist named Richard Dawkins who says, let's suppose there's a flying spaghetti monster. And you're like, flying spaghetti monster? He's really ridiculing Christianity with this argument, but it's the same thing. It's the same as the teapot argument. He just changed the teapot to a spaghetti monster. So there's not a lot of new arguments coming from them. So then again, why are we calling them new? The new of new atheism is attitude. That's what it is. It's attitude. These new atheists are not primarily concerned with building logical arguments or marshalling evidence to prove to you Christians that God doesn't exist. They're actually not really interested in that at all. What they're interested in is shaming you, ridiculing you, and showing contempt for religion. That's the main thing that they want to do. So I have a number of quotes at this point that I'm going to share with you. Now, some of you are good note takers, and you like to write down quotes. You're not going to be, they're too big. But I have them on a blog post at the very end, so if you want to get these, they're all available for you online. But for now, just read and Maybe take notes on the highlights. All right. So James Spiegel is a Christian, and he's written a book called The Making of an Atheist, How Immorality Leads to Unbelief. It's an excellent book. It's short. It's five chapters. Highly recommend it. I have the note at the bottom of the, the your notes so you can remember this later. But he says this. There's really nothing new about new atheism except the degree of bombast in their claims. Their prose seethes with outrage. Their anger and resentment toward all things religious is palpable. So these new atheists that are talking, when you look at what they say and look at how they speak, it's really just extra anger and vitriol. That's really all that's different. Now, I'm going to give you a quote by an atheist. This is Richard Dawkins. How many, raise your hand. I just want to know, how many of you have heard of Richard Dawkins? Okay, about 50% of us. He's an Oxford uh, biologist who goes around promoting atheism, and he's pretty much the guy who everyone knows is like this angry atheist. So he says it like this. He was talking to his fellow atheists and said, hey, here's how we ought to do it. He says, uh, we really should go beyond humorous ridicule. We should sharpen our barbs to a point where they really hurt. And that is to say, when we ridicule Christians, we should go beyond just being humorous and really rip them to shreds, really make fun of them, really show how contemptible their beliefs are. He says, I think we should probably abandon the irremediable religious, the irremediable religious, so the people who are religious and are going to be, precisely because that's what they are, irremediable. I'm more interested in the fence-sitters who haven't really considered the question very long or very carefully. And I think that they are likely to be swayed by a display of naked contempt. Nobody likes to be laughed at. Nobody wants to be the butt of contempt. So what did Richard Dawkins just say to you? He said, I'm not really interested in trying to persuade a religious person who actually believes. That's not really what I want to do. 
I want to find those people in the middle who are on the fence and they don't know, but they haven't thought about it too much. And I want to make fun of Christianity because I think that might sway them because no one wants to be made fun of. You understand, this is the world's most like well-known atheist. And what kind of an argument did he just give you? A junior high popularity argument. Like, you don't want to be the uncool kids. Don't be a Christian. Now, he has more arguments than this, but look at him reveal his plan of attack. So that's really interesting. And he's Oxford-educated. He's an Oxford professor. And he's saying, I think we ought to just make fun of Christianity so the people in the middle won't want to be made fun of and they'll come over to atheism. Remember that. We're going to come to a... Why are we talking about this? I'm going to get to a point here, but why would that be helpful for you as a Christian to know? I want you to ask that question. All right, I have another atheist, James Fodor. He's a former Mormon, and he's author of a book that's against... It's writing against a, a, a Christian apologist. He says this, when he describes the difference between older atheism and this new atheism. He says... In contrast to old atheism, by which I mean atheism as it existed roughly prior to the turn of millennium, new atheism has tended to be much more assertive in its public discourse, much more eager and willing to make its views heard, and much less concerned about respecting the religious beliefs or faith of others. New atheism has also tended to focus to an even greater degree than the old atheism on the social and political harms of religion especially fundamentalist religion. New atheism has also placed a much greater emphasis on creating a sustained mass movement and of developing socially and politically engaging atheism. Now, why this is helpful is... Oh, I don't have this. I'm sorry. I didn't have that good quote for you. It's on the website. So what I think is interesting here is this is an atheist himself describing new atheism. He doesn't really have a reason to lie about it because he is one. So what I'm saying is, you see, I think I'm saying the same thing they're saying about themselves. I don't think I'm misrepresenting them. I'm not building a straw man and then just kicking it over. Like I think we have a good read on what new atheism is. All right, so let's talk about specifically the new atheists. The new atheists. Today, if you hear the term new atheist, you're, it's primarily dealing with these four individuals. Uh, this guy all the way on the end is Richard Dawkins. That's the one we just quoted. This guy here is Sam Harris. This guy here is Christopher Hitchens. He died in 11, 2011 of esophageal cancer. He was a smoker and a drinker his whole life and took him very quickly. Point of interest, my grandfather was a chain smoker his whole life, and he got esophageal cancer, and from the day he found out till the day he died was like two months. Uh, they even got him up to Mayo in surgery, and as they opened him up, the cancer had spread so quickly from his esophagus down into his whole stomach. So he ended up making it a whole year because he had it 20 years after my grandfather did. Uh, but even chemotherapy today couldn't keep it away. It's, it was a very deadly disease. And the guy at the end who looks like an angry um, uh, Charles Darwin is a man by the name of Dan Dennett. And he's a scientist and uh, teacher of philosophy at Tufts University. And uh, he worked at MIT for a while on artificial intelligence back in the 80s. I mean, what I'm trying to point out is these guys are all incredibly smart. These aren't dummies. They're not ignorant people. They're very intelligent. All right, so let's talk about them. So where did they come from? Because they just kind of pop up. Well, it wasn't that they weren't around, but 9-11 happened, and that really galvanized them and brought them out of the woodwork. So for some of you who are younger who weren't around in 2001... On September 11, 2001, you probably heard terrorists flew two giant airplanes filled with fuel into two very tall buildings in New York called the World Trade Center. And those buildings fell down, killed 3,600 people, if I remember correctly. And that war on terror, that terroristic war, started because they were Islamic terrorists who believed in Islamic jihad, holy war, and they wanted to come and kill all the Christians and all the secularists in America. The new atheists saw that as an attack motivated by religion, and they said, see, religion makes everything worse. Religion is always the motivation of a war. We need to stop this. We need to put a stop to this. Now, before 9-11, had there been religious wars? 
sure. I mean, look at Europe and 1600 to 1800. I mean, it's, it's like so many religious wars. Had there ever been atheist wars? Well, that's what they're not really looking at. While Hitler might have called himself a Christian, he was using evolutionary theology, or theory to cleanse his race and make the perfect human. That's, that's from an atheistic perspective. Stalin, Lenin, Mao, all of the big atheist communists who just did complete genocides, that was all atheist wars. So they're seeing one war motivated by religion, but they're not really recognizing there's lots of motivations for war. But this is what they needed. This was the evidence to show that we need to put an end to religion once and for all because it only ever does bad things. So they started off and they started publishing some books. And the, they all, all four of them published books sort of around the same time period. And then one of them says, hey, we're kind of like the four horsemen of new atheism. Now, so this is going to be like a class. Does anyone know, you want to raise your hand, tell me what, what four horsemen is referring to? Because that's not just like four guys riding horses. Anyone know? Go ahead. Yeah, in Revelation, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. So Christopher Hitchens, who was the third atheist, he's a former Anglican. So he knows a lot about Christianity. So he coined that phrase. He's like, yeah, we're like the four horsemen of new atheism. It's really intriguing to see there's a lot of religious undertones because two of them are former Christians. And then two of them grew up sort of secular. So here's their response. Uh, they write these books. And all the books are pictured off here on the side, but uh, they all come out one after another. They're in this order. So the first book is Sam Harris's The End of Faith. He starts the whole thing, and he writes a book saying, look at what happened in 9-11. Look at what happened when we tolerated religion. Hey, it's time to consider making this stuff illegal and getting rid of it. After that, you have Sam Harris writing a second book called Letters to a Christian Nation. Now, why does he write that book? Well, he writes his first book, The End of Faith, and guess what happens? Christians start writing tons of rebuttals that show that his arguments are faulty. And he, he has to step back and say, whoa, whoa, okay, look, hey, Christians in this nation, like, you know there's more Christians, there's more than just Christians in America. And so he has to write a response book. In the same year, oh, I should go back really quick. Sam Harris, he's writing this in 2004. Why did he wait three years to write a book? 9-11 happens in 2001. He writes a book in 2004. Why does he wait that long? Anyone ever try to publish a book? <laughs> it like, it takes, when did you write your first, your first book and get it completed? Four years, yeah, and it's still not, you got a publisher, but it's not published yet. This is, so he, immediately after 9-11, I mean, the tower falls, he's like, I'm writing a book, but it just took that long to get out. I would say all of these books, Dawkins, he's not waiting till 2006 to write something. It takes a while to get this stuff pulled together. Writing a book is a big ordeal. So he writes a book called The God Delusion, and it's essentially a chapter-by-chapter chapter, uh, critique of all religion, but he's a former Anglican, which is a former Christian in Britain, well, sort of a Catholic-y kind of Christian, and so most of his arguments are aimed at Christianity. If you look up any of these books today, there are full rebuttals written by multiple different Christian outlets. All the major Christian apologists have addressed almost all these. So none of these have gone unanswered. They all have Christian critiques and answers to the faults and the logical fallacies that the atheists are making. Uh, Christopher Hitchens writes a book called God is Not Great, subtitle Why Religion Poisons Everything. So he's gone on a debate tour with another Christian by the name of Doug Wilson. And the best part I remember is he talks about, um, he talks about how there is some good to Christianity or whatever. And Wilson turns around and says, well, how is that religion poisoning? Isn't religion supposed to poison everything? I mean, some of these arguments are very easy to show they don't fully work. I'm not saying they're not saying something substantive that you need to deal with. But I'm saying all of them have been answered very thoroughly. And then the final one is Dan Dennett. Breaking the, spell of, breaking the Spell, and it's like an idea of religion. I'm going to give you a quote from that one. What he is, the subtitle of that one is Religion as Natural Phenomena. Ooh, phenomena. Now we're getting academic. Now we're smart because we're using big words, right? Phenomena just means things that happen. That's literally all it means, okay? 
So religion is just natural stuff that happens. So a cloud you know, forms and lightning hits and burns something down. And an ignorant person who doesn't know science says, oh, well, God did that. It's like Rome's uh, Greek gods, or the, the Greek gods they stole from, you know, Zeus is the lightning god and all that. So here's what he says. He's talking about, like, what do we do? He says this. Dennett had a harsh depiction of moral evils associated with religion. In his last chapter, he says, now what do we do? Uh, so he, he spends his book ripping apart Christianity and other religions because of how bad they are for the world. And then the final chapter is, what do we do? Well, it's pretty bland and conciliatory. He says this. Uh, so in the end, he says, my central policy recommendation is that we gently, firmly, how's that work, educate these people of the world so that they can make truly informed choices about their lives. This recommendation sounds harmless enough. Why can't we all agree on it? Now, that's, there's an article that's analyzing Dennett that I'm quoting, so the, yellow is, or the, the quotes are Dennett, the other is this article. This person says, Unfortunately, this conceals a fundamental disagreement. To give the recommendation a concrete meaning, the meanings of the little words we must be specified. Who is the we who we are to educate the people or who are to educate the people of the world? At stake is the political control of religious education, the most contentious of all, relig- of all issues that religion poses to modern societies. We might be the parents of the children to be educated or the local school board or the National Ministry of Education, ooh, that's a good shot, or a legally established ecclesiastical authority or an international group of philosophers sharing Dennett's views. Of all these possibilities, the last is the least likely to be implemented. Dennett's recommendation leaves the practical problems of regulating religious education unsolved. Until we can agree about the meaning of we, the recommendation to gently, firmly educate the people of the world will only cause further dissension between religious believers and well-meaning philosophers. So the point here is that Dan Dennett says we need to educate the world about this. Well, who's we? He probably means him, which why is his perspective more correct than our perspective? So it sounds like a solution, but in the end, it's the same thing. There's another guy. um, Oh, we're skipping that quote. All right. A third element to understand about the new atheism is what I'm going to call the social media factor. The social media factor. How many of you have a Facebook account? Okay. How many of you have a MySpace page? (laughs) Okay, that's really old. So social media is essentially when you get on the Internet and you be social. Now, we think of Facebook, but it means Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, Instagram, blogging. Blogging is actually the primary and first social media that we had before we had all those others. So, when new atheism comes on the scene, social media is alive and well. A hundred years ago, when Bertrand Russell was writing his atheistic uh, beliefs, they didn't have social media. They didn't have an easy way to get it out there other than publishing a book, writing a magazine article, or doing some sort of an interview that might go out on television. Nowadays, anyone can write anything, and it can be on the web in about an hour. So, this, you can't understand the growth of new atheism without understanding it happened during the internet age. It probably would not have taken off as much if it had happened 50 or 100 years ago. Social media made it possible for it to grow at the rate that it did. Oops, let me go back here. So there's two things. Web 2.0, which is, the internet comes out, was it the 50s or the 60s when it first started? I can't remember. And it was primarily like a, a communication avenue and a, like an information retrieval avenue. In the late 80s, early 90s, they're working on how to make it more social. And so, like, my brother's a web developer or something, and he's not. he says, I don't go in for the Web 2.0 stuff. And what he means is, all this social media stuff. And then the atheists, however, are like, hey, we're using this because that's what people do. That's another way we communicate. So this is an example of one of the many things they've done to promote themselves. In 2008, they had something, it was called, I'm calling it the uh, atheist bus thing, okay, the bus uh, campaign. In Britain, uh, they have state religion. 
So in America, I grow up and I don't have to be in a church. I'm not forced to be in a church. I voluntarily choose to be in a church. Unless I'm Catholic or Episcopal or Lutheran, then I'm born into it and sprinkled as a baby. In Britain, when you're born, your parents have to declare, are you Catholic? Are you Anglican? And I can't remember what the other one is. There's another legally sanctioned uh, uh, church. Now, I don't know if this has changed today. I would imagine it probably has. But many people in England grew up part of a church before they ever actually believed in Jesus and got saved. That's part of the problem with a state-run church. And so you have all these people in England who are saying, I don't really know if this is right, and I don't think it's true. And then new atheism is spreading its message through social media. And so they do this bus campaign. And what they do is they put these signs on the side of buses that says there's probably no God. Now stop worrying and enjoy your life. And so you got these buses with these billboards going all over the city. And that's just an example of how they're trying to get the message out and evangelize their own position. Now, quick time out. Atheism 100 years ago, it was more like, hey, let's go to where the ideas are being discussed. Let's debate atheism versus Christianity. Okay, now we go home, and I'm an atheist at home, and you're a Christian at home. And, and I'm, I'm going to try to tell you about my beliefs, and you're going to try to tell me about yours. But this new atheism is as energized as some of us Christians are about sharing the gospel. Now, the last two weeks, we've been talking about reaching the world. How did Paul reach the Jews? How did Paul reach the pagans? Please understand that if we don't reach the world, there are people trying to reach the world still. The atheists are, other religions are, the Mormons are. So it's very important for us to take seriously God's command to go and share the gospel with all nations. And here's an example of atheists who they think they know what's right, and they're doing the same thing. So this was a big, uh, a big deal. Now, what happened is they went to raise money for it. And, <clears throat> I mean, how much does it cost to put an ad on a bus? I don't know how much those things cost. They, they're probably expensive, but they can't be, like, so expensive a normal business couldn't afford it. Well, the atheists in the British Atheist Society or something ran a campaign to raise money to do this. And then they, had, they got a campaign donor who said, I'll meet, I'll, I'll match half the funds. And it was Richard Dawkins, who's pictured there. Now, I think that was probably for publicity. I think they probably could have pulled some money together. And so they got some donations. They put them on all these buses in Europe. And here's my point. They're active. They're trying to persuade people. They're going out and trying to get a hold of people. They're finding websites where people who are young and aren't thinking much are at, and they're trying to get in there and toss out their message. If there's no Christians doing the same, you understand the world's going to hear one message. Only one. Only one message. And so this is important for us to consider that they're not sitting back waiting around. And so we also need to be making action. Like we need to be very active in going out and trying to share the gospel from what we think is true, which I believe is true. All right. So now let's talk about what God's word says. <clears throat> what does God's word say about atheism? All right. The first big idea, and I think there's probably a bunch, but I got two for you today, is they don't believe, they disbelieve, Primarily, I would say, because they sin. Primarily because they sin. If you want to turn to the book of Psalms, you can. Oh, sorry, you're going to have three sub-points here, but that's fine. This will work. I, I made a change, and I forgot to make it updated in the PowerPoint. So the first two are going to be under the heading, they don't believe because they sin. They don't believe because they sin. I'm going to go to Psalm 14.1. <clears throat> the fool says in his heart, there is no God. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Now, I've heard that verse many times in my life. Um, to not believe in God is the same as being what Proverbs calls a fool. And here's David saying it first. But the text keeps going, and I didn't know the second half of this psalm. So it says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They, that'd be the fools, are corrupt. 
they do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. Now, does there is none who does good sound familiar to anyone? Where, some of you are shaking your head. Where do you think you've heard that before? There is none who does good. What's that? Yeah, this is a quote from Romans 3. Romans 3 is quoting this verse when it says, There's no one apart from God's work who deserves to go to heaven. All of them are wicked and evil, which includes me and you before Christ worked on our lives. So it's interesting that David says, The fool says inside of himself, There's no God. And then David says, They do abominable deeds. They're corrupt. There's no one who does good. To me, it sounds like David is saying, they say there's no God, but what's the real reason they're saying that? Because they're sinful. Because they do abominable deeds. Because they're corrupted. That corruption has led them to say there's no God. Now, I want to, for just a moment, ask you to think of a big idea here. If you talk to an atheist, I think they're going to say, some of them would say this, I would believe in God if you could show me proof. The reason I don't believe in God is I don't see evidence. Now, me personally, I think that's false. The Bible never says people don't believe because they don't know or have evidence. I'm going to go back to Romans 1 in a bit, and we're going to see that that's not true. What the Bible says the problem is behind unbelief is sin. So when they say, I would believe, but I don't have evidence, I think they are misunderstanding what's going on inside of them. And here, I think you're seeing that from David. David's saying, look, they don't believe because they're sinful. Now, I'm sinful. Why do I believe? Well, I think God's worked in me. The Spirit's changed me. And so I need to remember that when I talk to an atheist. All right, go to Psalm 53. Go to Psalm 53. Here it says this. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, doing abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. Boy, that sure sounds similar to Psalm 14.1, doesn't it? It's almost identical. Okay, it's, it's almost the same wording. The reason I want to point this out is there are two places in the Bible that say exactly the same thing. And I think that repetition is significant. I think it's important that the Bible seems to think that when people don't believe, it doesn't go back to a lack of knowledge. It goes back to personal rebellion, rebelling against God. Now, how can I say that? How can the Bible really make the case that you don't believe because you're sinful? Turn over to Romans chapter 1. We're going to go back to Romans chapter 1. We left off at verse 18. So I'm going to read 18 again in chapter 1. And then we're just going to skip in and out throughout the chapter. Verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. So who's God wrathful against? Sinful people, unrighteous, ungodly people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. That means in their sin, they suppress truth. Well, what truth is the Bible saying they try to suppress? If you've ever uh, swam in a pool with your buddies or your friends, um, at some point you've inevitably probably done a dunking fight or a dunking war where you try to dunk the other person under the water. I mean, if you haven't done that yet, wait till you get to a pool with your buddies who love you and care about you and Next thing you know, they're shoving you under the water, okay? But dunking means to push something underneath, okay? That's the idea I'm talking about here, suppress. Suppress is the idea that you're like shoving it down so you can't see it anymore. So it says they suppress the truth. Well, what truth are they dunking? What truth are they hiding? Look at verse 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown them. So I want to argue that the truth that Paul is saying people suppress 
is the knowledge of God. And the knowledge that they suppress, Scripture says that's plain to them. That doesn't mean it's undecorated. It means it's obvious. It's right in front of them. It's not hidden. It's not being removed. It's not absent or missing. It's right there, and they can see it. That is the truth that they shove down. Now notice what it says next. God has shown it to them. So somehow God has shown them. So please consider something. The Bible that you hold in your hands says that humans on this earth, every human who's ever lived, has known God exists because it's plain to them and because God has shown them. That means the dude who lives on an island in the middle of the Pacific and has never read a Bible has the same knowledge of God that you and I have minus what we know from the Bible. Now, this is what I find. Christians need to ask if they believe that. Do you believe what the Bible says? I think often we shift to think, okay, they don't know, they, they can't know, so then it must not be that big of a deal if they don't believe, or well, I couldn't expect them to believe. And I do think there's some questions there to deal with. But if those people on those islands died and then God sent them to hell to punish them, would God be just or unjust? If they don't know, that might seem unjust. But what does the Bible tell you right here? I do believe that every human who's ever existed knows their creator. Now, it says next, verse 20, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. I'm going to talk really quick. Invisible attributes, that means things about you, like I have an attribute. I have dark hair. I have an attribute. I'm mediocre tall. I have an attribute. I uh, have bad vision, so I have to wear contacts. Those are all attributes about me. Uh, But there are attributes that you don't see visibly, but you can know about me. Uh, In God, he has a different kind of invisible attribute. You don't see God. No one's ever seen God as a person. He's hidden. He's divine. He's different. And yet, you can see that he did create everything. Because God sort of signed the universe with his name so that you know, hey, I do exist. Now, what does it say? Everyone knows his eternal power and his divine nature. I want to talk really quick about those. Eternal power, man, if I talk about how powerful you are, I might say, I would talk in quantity. So you can bench press 150 pounds, or you can squat 300, or... You can beat up two people at the same time. Or you're a champion wrestler. Those are things, those are types of quantities of power, right? Or if I'm talking about the power of a car, it has this many horsepower. Or it has this much, you know, output or whatever. But when I say the word eternal, does it seem like a category mistake to anybody else? Eternal is like how long something goes. I wouldn't necessarily use that for power. I might say all-powerful, but eternal power? That's weird. I think what's going on here is Paul is saying God has, like, all the power forever. All Like, he's really stacking an adjective, trying to get to the limits of what the most powerful thing can be. So what's the most powerful thing in your understanding, in your imagination? When you think of the thing that's the most powerful, what are you thinking of? Paul says, that's God. Now, what if it's the force? Okay, I don't have a lightsaber, and I I can't do a Jedi mind trick, and I can't, like, get you all to move back in your chairs by using this unseen power. But in the, the Star Wars movies, is the force a person? No, it's like an inanimate thing. It's like the wind. The wind is not a person. You see its effects and all that. Would anyone be confused at looking at the creation and thinking, man, a force did this? A singularity, a big explosion. According to the Bible, when you look at what's created, you see this had to have been made. This couldn't have been an accident. Nothing in my life is an accident. And it had to have been something that can think 
and have like an intention and a plan because it looks so planned out. It's, isn't it really funny how my hand has four fingers and then a different kind of finger we call a thumb? Huh. Why don't I have five fingers? What's my hand good for? Holding things, grabbing onto things, picking things up. Like imagine if you only had four fingers. Could you pick things up? Well, yeah, but you probably drop things a lot more often. Why do I have four fingers and one thumb? Why not have five fingers or five thumbs? Inside of you, you intuitively know I was made so I can do things with these hands. Why do I have two eyes in the front of me that see almost everything around? And why do I have ears that can hear almost all the way around me? Why, why does my body have such finely tuned, precise ways of acting and living and moving? It's almost as though I was designed to be able to say farm or work in a garden or put the world in order and have dominion over it. Animals don't seem to be like that. They're different. There's some similarities, but they seem to be different. It doesn't look like I'm just an accidental byproduct of something called evolution. Um, there's a apologist named Doug Axe. It's a cool name, Doug Axe. I mean, wouldn't that be a fun name to have? And he says, if you've ever heard of the word common sense, he says we all have something he calls common science. Usually if a scientist starts speaking and you're not a scientist, you kind of feel like, oh, I can't say anything to the scientist because I haven't gone to school forever and I don't know science. But he says, what's science? It's just observing things that happen, noticing repeatable patterns, and coming to conclusions. So I'm going to show you how you're all scientists today. If you leave your house and you didn't make your bed, and then you came home one day, now you've done this thousands of times, you go, you don't make your bed, you go to school or work, you come home, your bed's still not made, okay? Then one day you come home and your bed is made. How many of you think, my bed learned how to make itself? What? My bed must be evolving. Wow. Now, none of us think that, right? What do you think? Someone made the bed. Mom made the bed. The spouse made the bed. You don't think of the bed made itself. Now, he actually points out that you're doing science when that happens. You're actually watching repeatable events in the world around you, and when something happens not in the way that it always does, you wonder, what's the explanation? You're already a scientist. Um, does anyone eat SpaghettiOs? They're just not the best thing. That's a canned tomato-like soup with like spaghetti, but the spaghetti's shaped into letters. It's O's. And they have alphabet soup, too, so it's like the whole alphabet. If I dump out a can of alphabet soup in a bowl, and, like, it, the, weirdly, there's this sentence that says, look upstairs in the closet. What do you think? Does anyone think your can of spaghetti or your can of alphabet soup is telling you there's something in the closet you need to see? No, you think it's dumb luck or a coincidence, right? Because you've seen in the real world, this is how things happen. Paul is saying, like the things we're talking about here is what Paul's getting at. You look at the world and you can tell it's been designed. There's intentionality. There's purpose. You can't say this is an accident. You know what accidents look like. They don't have order. They don't have intentionality. They don't have the ability to keep existing and reproduce. I mean, if, um, if you look up and you see a cloud that looks like a tiger and you're like, hey, it looks like a tiger. You ever do that when you're little, you lay on your back, you look at the clouds, well, that one kind of looks like a mountain or that one kind of looks like a star. But no one really thinks there's something up there making the clouds into a tiger. Now, if I looked up and I saw clouds and letters and it said, uh, Andy, stop drinking coffee. Okay, and it's in clouds. What am I going to think about those clouds? It was a plane doing the skywriting bit, right? Because clouds don't do that. All of the stuff I'm talking about from science is what Scripture is getting at right here. You can't live your life thinking everything's an accident. You wouldn't live that way. You, you rely on reality to be the way it's designed. And it has all the evidences of design throughout it. So Paul says, this is obvious. <clears throat> this is known by everybody. 
So when someone doesn't believe, what are they doing? They're taking all that information, they're trying to hide it. Shove it over here so that they don't have to believe a God exists. Because <clears throat> guess what? If a God exists, then what do I not get to do anymore? Live the way I want to. Um, this, this phone, aside from being way too expensive, was designed. It has a purpose to carry out. It has some very complex computer codes inside telling it what to do. If this phone decided to do its own thing, what would I do to the phone? Well, it would be probably an Android phone, and I would throw it away and get one that worked. Um, okay, sorry. Uh, it, it, I, I would probably run a diagnostic, or I would check to see if there's an update, or maybe there's a, a virus, and I would fix the phone, right? Sometimes it's humbling to be a Christian because I'm more like that phone than I realize. I was designed. I had a purpose. God made me to look like him to the world and to show his glory. But I am a sinner and I want to do what I want to do. I'm like a sheep that's gone astray doing his own thing. Paul says we know these things. We all understand them. All right, so there's some results to that. Basically, your mind breaks. If you want to read the rest of the chapter, you can see your mind breaks. But go to verse 30. We'll skip ahead. Actually, no, no, let's, let's have more fun. Go to um, verse 28. So in 21 through 27, it talks about how we don't thank God, we don't honor Him, and we know we should, and so God gives us over to wrong thinking. And we keep sinning in this wrong thinking, so he gives us over to more sin. And you can read that on your own. But in verse 28, he says, And since they didn't see fit to live for God or acknowledge him, God gave them over to a broken mind or a debased mind, so they would do things they shouldn't have done. They were filled with all manner of... Now notice, you don't believe in God. You try to hide that he lives. He, he confronts you with his reality. You don't, you don't thank him or honor him. And so he gives you over to the wrong thinking that you've chosen. And what does that lead to? One, unrighteousness. Two, evil. Three, covetousness. That's when you really want something you shouldn't want, or you want something you should, but you want it way too much. Four, malice. That's when you want to hurt someone. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent. That's like disrespectful and disobedient. Haughty boastful, that's like arrogant, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. I always find it funny that Paul sneaks in disobedience to parents in this list of like horrid sins. Today, like our culture thinks it's fine to disobey your parents. You know, you do you, live your truth. Foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Verse 32, though they know God's righteous decree, how do they know God's righteous decree? Well, they don't need a Bible to know it. The law is written on your heart. The conscience tells us right and wrong. We, we have that ever since Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. So you know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. So not only do they do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. So please, I want you to, this is serious, understand that when people say they don't believe in God, they've looked at creation and they've known at some point in their life and they've said, no, I don't want that. For number one, they want to do what they want, but number two, they know that when they sin against their creator, they know they deserve to die. They know the penalty. Now, this is the Bible's assessment of atheism. When I speak to an atheist, they will probably not tell me, I want to be an atheist so I can do what I want and I can disobey, or I want to be an atheist because I don't want to think about the fact that one day I'm going to be judged for my sin by my creator, by my maker, and I don't want to think about that. They probably won't say that to you. They'll probably say a host of other things. Probably that should help inform how you can go about it. I'm not going to not, I would never walk up to an atheist and say, you know you really believe in God. Some people do that. I wouldn't do that. I would say, hey, what's your questions or what do you think? But then after we talk about some evidence stuff, I'm going to say, well, what would be enough proof to prove to you that God exists? And that's where I think I would learn there's never going to be enough proof because they don't want to believe they want there to not be a god 
All right, so James Spiegel from that book, The Making of an Atheist, has two quotes that I think is, are helpful. He says, atheism is not at all about the consequences of intellectual doubts. That's like wondering if it's true or not. That's what it means when it says intellectual doubt. Like, I don't know if this is true. That's not why you become an atheist. Such doubts are mere symptoms of root cause, moral rebellion. For the atheist, the missing ingredients is not evidence, but obedience. So the battle in the atheist, whether you can believe in God or not, is not actually up here where you're thinking and wondering and knowing. It's down here where you choose to do what you want. Am I going to choose to submit to God in my will, or am I going to choose to go my own way and rebel? That's where the atheist battle really is. Generally, they're going to say it's an intellectual thing. It's something I'm thinking, a knowledge, an evidence issue. Spiegel goes on to say, atheism is not the result of objective assessment of evidence, but of stubborn disobedience. It does not arise from the careful application of reason, but from willful rebellion. Atheism is the suppression of truth by wickedness, the cognitive consequence of immorality. In short, it is the sin that is the mother of unbelief. So here's the question I want you to consider. Why does atheism appeal? As a Christian, I think we have an idea that atheism appeals because it can answer the question of science or philosophy or the origins of the universe better than Christianity or the Bible can. But I would say that's not what the new atheist uses to try to convince people. They're trying to make them feel like Christianity is stupid and dumb and you shouldn't think about it. Just come over here and you can be in the club. Remember what Romans 1.32 says, they not only know that what they do is sinful, but they give approval to those who practice the same sins. Have you ever noticed that if you've been at, like say you're public schooled, or you have a job in a secular employment, or you have any friends, groups in your life who have been unbelievers, when they go to do something sinful and they know you're a Christian, they've, I don't have, I've never had a, a, a sinner say to a Christian, Hey, we're gonna. Oh, don't you do this? You're. It's sin, and you don't want to do that. But we're gonna go do that. Generally, it's. Hey, do you want to come with us? Think of Proverbs chapter one. The bad kids who are gonna try to get Solomon's son to come with them and go ambush someone and then murder him and steal their stuff. It's not like they say, Hey, we're gonna go ambush people. You shouldn't. It is a sin. But we're gonna do it. No, they're like, Hey, you want to come with us? It'll be great. No one will catch us. No one will know we're doing it. And we'll get rich. It'll be awesome. That's how this works. Now, look at, look at our political and ideological culture today. The other side of the aisle is not saying, yeah, you guys can do that, but we're going to do this. You, you shouldn't do it because you, know, you think this is wrong. No, they're trying to call us to them. Dawkins didn't say he should put out arguments. He said, like, appeal to them so that they won't feel bad, they won't feel bad about being made fun of because no one wants to be made fun of. So the appeal here I don't think is primarily an information appeal. I think it's something different. It's contempt, which means you're appealing to people's pride. You don't want to be the one made fun of. I think one of the appeals is an excuse to suppress. Hey, come on over here. There's no God. You don't have to worry about your life. You can just have fun. Wouldn't that be better than worrying if you've offended some eternal deity? You don't even know if that guy exists. It's an appeal to be able to suppress and do what you want. Secondly, I think it's an excuse for a sinful lifestyle. Man, if God doesn't exist, then there's no moral code and I can do whatever I want. And then thirdly, I think there might be an appeal to independence. There's some people who really want to be independent and don't want to be, have their life be interrupted. They want, don't want to be bothered by other people. C.S. Lewis was an example of this. He really hated it when people would intrude or interrupt into his day-to-day life. And so uh, he didn't want God to exist because he didn't want some deity intruding in his life. You know, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. I think that's what this is getting at. Uh, Now, oh, last point. No, I don't think very many atheists would come up and say that to you, though. I think they're going to say something else. You need to be wise and shrewd and understand that there's probably something else going on in their heart so how can I help them to see what they don't see about themselves alright so how do you watch out for this how do you keep from being conformed by them well first of all I would say watch out for bad or weak arguments 
Watch out for soundbite skepticism. Skepticism means you doubt something. And what a soundbite is like a snippet of something. So today, uh, social media basically trades in soundbites. You don't hear the whole thing the politician said. You just hear the really juicy part that the one side wants to use against them. That's like a soundbite. It's like a snippet. All right? So there's a guy who says this, Graham Veal. Uh, he's a Christian who's saying, here's how you survive athe- new atheism. He says, few consumers are interested in mature thought and calm reflection, like sitting down and talking through an issue. Media-savvy atheists have learned to target their message at the younger, more cynical market. Their aim is to sell consumers a sense of intellectual superiority for a low intellectual price. The new atheists have proven that such skepticism sells. Their books require no knowledge or interest in history or philosophy or even science. Anecdotal evidence and quips replace sound arguments. So the point here is that sometimes you get persuaded by a wrong argument because you don't want to do the heavy lifting of studying that out. We're lazy. Oh man, that must be true. It sounds true, but I'm not going to look into it and study it out for myself. So learn to study for yourself. Learn to talk to pastors and Christian leaders. Learn to find books that address these. All those new atheist books that I showed you, man, am I scared that you'll go out and read them and be convinced as an atheist? It could happen, but there are so many Christian rebuttals written and produced and printed and widely available that if you were convinced by one, I think you'd show that you only looked at one side of the argument. And that's actually a sinful way to do things. I'll I'll get to that in a minute. All right, secondly... Watch out for cherry-picking or straw-man arguments. Cherry-picking or straw-man arguments. Cherry-picking, I'm not saying, like, don't go pick cherries. But cherry-picking is usually where you pick, like, the one thing that you want. It might be like this, Gardetto-picking. Does anyone else do Gardetto-picking? You know what Gardettos are? It's that, like, crunchy snack mix. And who likes the little toast pieces the best? The garlic toast? That's me. I'm, like, picking those things out. You know what I don't like the most? What, what does everyone hate in snack mix? You can just say it. Pretzels. Come on. How many of you like pretzels? I'm very suspicious of you immediately. Immediately. I hate pretzels. I don't, I don't hate them. I just don't like them that much. It's like, it's the filler. They put it in because it's cheap and they can do it. But what happens when I get a snack mix and I start eating just the pretz- then everything but the pretzels is I have another person in my home who can tell that the pretzels aren't being eaten. And I am helpfully pointed out that I should be, I should be eating all the snack mix. And generally, that's how it is. what I'm doing. I'm, I'm, I'm cherry picking, but there's no cherries in the mix. It's Gardetto picking. Well, cherry picking is like you pick one thing out of a worldview, and you show that that's wrong, but you don't take the rest of the worldview. So, for example, in the Old Testament, when the Israelites were going into the Promised Land, they killed all the Amalekites. All the men, all the women, all the babies. They just killed them all. And so Richard or uh, Christopher Hitchens will say, how can you say your God is good when he committed genocide and wiped out an entire people group who did nothing to deserve that? They're just innocent people living in a town, and God wiped them out so the Israelites could have the land. That's cherry picking. That's not the whole story. Why were the Amalekites just wiped out in Scripture? Does anyone know? What? Yeah, they were sinful, and they were not repenting. And God actually gave them time to repent. And when he didn't, his judgment was the Israelites came in and killed them all. That was a judgment for sin. So cherry-picking says, here's a group of people that God wiped out. That's wrong. But it doesn't say, oh, that group was totally rebellious against Yahweh. Oh, and God even gave them more time. Oh, and all people deserve to die for sin, so everyone dying right now would be okay. They don't take the whole worldview and look at it. They just take one little bit, and they, they rip it to shreds. And that's the straw man argument. It's like I set up the scarecrow, and I'm like, this is Christianity, and then I knock it over. Look, Christianity couldn't defeat me. Well, it was a scarecrow. It's not even alive. And so a lot of atheist arguments are like this. So what you can do to help yourself is to be on guard. Is the argument that I'm looking at really a good argument, or is it just a straw man argument? And then thirdly, oh, here's a quote from Norm Geisler. 
If you're arguing that God is immoral to do such and such, then you must not caricature a Christian system to make it look easy to knock down. If you want to argue it's Christianity, let it be the real thing. It's important to prevent this illicit caricaturing early in the game because of the tempting tactic that might arise throughout. The atheist who argues that God does not do enough to fix the problem of moral evil often claims that the kind of morality God foists on the humankind is actually immoral and thus makes the problem of evil more worse. We are told that this immoral morality includes nasty prescriptions to faith and worship and so on, which no dignified human should stoop. Yet, if God exists, are not such prescriptions perfectly understandable and inevitable? You can't ask God for a godless morality. So showing that if you really think there's a God who exists, then all these things God demands are perfectly just. Here's the creator of the universe who gave me life out of the goodness of his plan, and then I've squandered that and sinned against him. So doesn't it make perfect sense that I would be judged for sin? So you can't take one bit of the system and not the whole. Now, even atheists agree with this. Some. So Fodor, who we looked at earlier, said, oh, I don't have that quote. Sorry, I had to cut that one for time. All right, and then thirdly, remember Proverbs 8:17. This is one of my favorite verses. It says this, the one who states his case first seems to be right until another comes and examines him. The one who states his case first seems to be right until another one comes and examines him. What that's saying is if you're in a debate with people and one guy comes up and says, here's why I think everyone should kick cats. And he makes all these arguments how pesky cats are and how bad they are. Oh, let's do this. Rabbits. Let's do rabbits. This is why we should get rid of all the rabbits. They eat our gardens. They dig holes in the foundation. They're always causing problems. They build burrows under your deck. This is horrible for the, for the, the city. We should just get rid of all rabbits. Well, that sounds pretty logical, right? If, if you stopped right there, it might be persuasive. But what do you now need to hear? You need to hear, like, why maybe rabbits should exist. Well, maybe they do things in the soil. Maybe they do things in the ecosystem. Maybe they're just cute and furry, and God made them that way, and we should like rabbits. Do you see where there's always two sides to every argument? But if you only look at the fuzzy bunnies are good argument or the shoot all the wabbits argument, like, you're not going to get the full picture. Now, here's, here's my point. Proverbs 8.17 says this, and then I think maybe 8.13 says something very similar. If the Bible says one person's going to sound right until the next person comes, what do you think the Bible says I should be doing? Do you, do you understand that this is not optional for the Christian? It's my job to look at both sides of these arguments. So if I were to walk away from Christianity because I thought there's no evidence, and then someone says, well, what arguments for Christianity did you read? Or what rebuttals did you read? And I'm like, I didn't read any. It's dumb. I don't need to. They're unscientific. They're idiots. Because Richard Dawkins says so. Do you understand I'm sinful? Because the Bible says you should look at both sides. So be careful. It's very easy to fall into the trap of just looking at one side of something. Okay. That was a lot. Good job. Uh, most of you, your brains are at like the level where they're about to melt. Trust me, it's okay. My students make it through this all the time. You just gotta like clear your head, drink some coffee. Uh, you know, don't think for just a moment, and your brain won't melt. But if you want more information, at the bottom of your little handout, there's some resources. One is just my blog. I never do anything with it anymore. But if you want those quotes, they're all there for you. Number two is an episode of a podcast where we talk about that book. And what we do is we go into more detail about the immorality aspect. I don't want to go into that here with the crowd that we're in, but it's a little bit of the highlights of that book. And then also the book itself is just really, really good. And it's short. It's not that thick. It's not that dense. It's a really easy, it's not an easy read, but it's a short read. So anyone could read that one. So hopefully that would help you. If, and if you have questions, I'm happy to ask them. So let's go ahead and pray. And then uh, are we break time next? Oh, song. We'll pray and then we'll have a song. All right, Father, we love you. God, thank you for blessing us. Thank you that we live in an age 
where even though we face questions about Christianity and we face people attacking our beliefs, you have not left us without a way of escape. But you have given us a way to bear up under this God by uh, giving us resources. Father, it's easy for unbelief to cast its message on social media. But, Father, you've made it easier for us also to cast our message. It's easier for wrong views to be promoted. But, Father, today we all have access to multiple copies of the Bible all the time. So, Father, we're very thankful for the way you've given us the tools we need to trust in you, God, and take the next step of faith. I pray, Father, that if any of us do have questions about this, that we would reach out to our pastors and look for answers. But, Father, I do pray that we'd remember that the key issue is trusting in you. And I pray, Lord, that if we have questions, we would trustingly seek the answers, uh, submitting to you and believing in you. Father, we love you. In your son's name we pray. Amen.